Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, which is a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. So how do novelists react when faced with the scholars who study and teach their work? Some of them, at least, somehow manage to stifle the impulse to flee. And I think we're very lucky that this includes Helen Garner, who's noted for her nonfiction and fiction alike, and is the author of a lapidary masterpiece that I've read over and over, The Children's Bach. Um, Ms. Garner, hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. So I'm John Plotz, and you're going to be hearing from my partner, Arthi Vade, in upcoming episodes. But today I'm going to be serving as third wheel for a conversation between Helen Garner and Professor Elizabeth McMahon, a distinguished scholar of Australian literature at the University of New South Wales and the author of, among much fine other work, the 2016 monograph, Islands, Identity and the Literary Imagination. So Helen Garner's novels include her prize-winning 2018 The Spare Room, but she's been celebrated as a novelist since her 1977 Monkey Grip, which is, among other things, a remarkable anatomy of addiction and an unsparing yet still sympathetic portrayal of the share house life of 1970s Melbourne. She's also the author of, so uh, Helen, I lost count at about a dozen, but I will say at least a dozen books of nonfiction including The First Stone and This House of Grief, as well as three screenplays, among them for Gillian Armstrong's very wonderful uh, and I think very Garner-esque film, The Last Days of Shenu. So it's an honor to have you both here and I uh, hand the conversation over to you. Thanks, John. Because one of the ways that, one of the things you've spoken about quite a bit in uh, your conversations about your writing and what is so incredibly clear in, um, in your writing is this, this spare economy um, in which scene and mood are set. Um, and you've talked about a number of times where you were writing and then you went to cut back and cut back. Um, cut back the work to uh, get rid of parts of description and to be left with, I think you use the word gaps, to, to create the gaps in the writing as well as what's actually there. And I'd like to, to think about that a bit and I think that one of the ways that we could go into that is to, re- if you would mind, reading this section from the Children's Park because I think that it is, you know, the whole book does this and it's one of the extraordinary experiences of reading it is that as a reader you feel completely located but also like you're just missing something or just behind or just in front of something all the time. Um, So could you read that section for us then? Sure. 
this comes about mm, not quite halfway through, about a third of the way into the book. Vicky began to hang round the fox's house in Bunker Street earlier each day. They heard her old push bike crash against the rubbish bins at breakfast time. She sprang up the concrete steps, checked her hair in the glass and stayed an hour, ate an egg that Dexter had poached for himself, tried to make herself useful and agreeable, though she was domestically incompetent. She tipped tea leaves down the sink and blocked it. She put embers from the potbelly stove into a plastic bucket and melted it. But she began to know where things were. She was cheerful company. She laughed at Dexter's jokes. She played with Arthur. She laced his boots for him, though he'd been able to do it himself for years. Can I walk down to school with you, she said. Do you mind? Yes, said Arthur with his nose in a cereal packet. You do mind? I mean, yes, you can come. When the mail arrived and Athena opened envelopes, Vicky watched and said, I never get any letters. Athena suppressed an impulse to say, you can read mine. Vicky loved their lavatory in the corner of the yard, its shelves made of brick and timber stuffed with old paperbacks, broken tools, camping gear and boxes of worn-down pencils. She loved the notes they left for each other, the drawings and silly rhymes, the embarrassing singing, the vegetable garden, the fluster under which lay a generous order, the rushes of activity followed by periods of sunny calm. Vicky was in love with the house, with the family, with the whole establishment of it. Bunker Street is her god, said Elizabeth. Dexter was flattered. I feel sentimental when I see you, Morty, he said. Why don't you bring this Philip round here? Philip? What would I bring him here for? He's your bloke, isn't he? Aren't you going to get married one of these days? Elizabeth shouted with laughter. Marry him? Forget it. He's already married. And anyway, can you see me as a married woman? Dexter clenched his fists and danced up and down on the spot. But I want you to be happily married. Elizabeth raised her eyes to the ceiling. I don't understand the way you live, said Dexter. What are the rules? Does he, you know, betray you? Of course he bloody betrays me, said Elizabeth. When you've been with someone that long, what else is there to do? Dexter flung out his arms and turned to Vicky, who was at the mirror by the piano, trying to tie a scarf round her head. I hate modern life, he said, modern American manners. It's just love, said Vicky, turning and twisting to get a back view of herself. Love, roared Dexter. I've never been in love then, in love. I don't even know what it is. What's so funny? You'll find out one day. What is this process of, of um, creating that and peering back um, in, in your writing? Let's see. Well, this book, I think, particularly, I've, I, I have a great fondness for this book, but I think it's probably the best thing that I, I ever wrote and sometimes I look at it and I don't remember huh. writing it. It's, it's, it's mm. as if someone else... Some other person called Helen Garner wrote, wrote this book. I, I feel that, uh, anyway, I won't go there, but I, I do feel that I do like it. So if other people like it, I'm really delighted. But I think um, one thing I'm really good at, and I think it might be uh, something to do with my lifelong habit of keeping a diary and a notebook, is I'm really good at keeping scraps of things and figuring out ways to fix them together. Um, just details, things that I write down and hear and notice in, in the life around me. Um, 
I, I write you know, things that I write down without any purpose. I, they just catch my attention and I scribble them down somewhere. And then one day I start thinking about a story. Maybe I could write a story about some people like this. And so I write one sentence and then I'll write another. And at a certain point I, I all these things that in a sense that I've noted and which are still floating around in my head, I can see a place where I can use them. I can see how I can attach them to each other. Or, or was, for example, in here there's a scene where Athena goes wandering around the city at night and she's she goes into a cafe and there are some Italian men in there and the TV's on up high and she sees a skier go down uh, at tremendous speed, um, a snowy mountainside. And I remember, I'm just getting a shiver remembering it. I mean, I scribbled that down at the time from some cafe I was in and then years later I've got this character wandering into a cafe and I think yes here's where I can put in the skier and and the skier seems to have a meaning that it didn't have before and, and some sort of significance that's that's um uh what's the word bestowed on it by this other structure that I'm building mm. I don't know if that makes any sense but Helen can I can I jump can I jump in yeah. on, on that? I, I love that image of the keeping of the pieces and then the meaning gets bestowed when you figure out how they fit together. D does that, uh, there's this, th you know, I'm obsessed with Hannah Arendt. And when she says that you always have to be scared of artists because they're always looking to turn something into an artwork. In other words, so she says that's the real reification is like, you know, because when you're around them, they're always, seeing how the thing fits into the meaning of art. Is it, does that resonate for you? Because in a way, what you're describing, it, it almost seems like you, you experience it first and then it becomes an artwork afterwards. Like you, Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I, that seems much more, uh, what Hannah Arendt said, seems much more kind of conscious yeah. than my experience is. So it's funny you should mention that, though, because I... Um, now that I've started publishing my diaries from way back, I'm a bit worried when I'm in a, in a room with people that they're thinking, I bet she's going to write all this down. I bet she's going to write down everything I say. And I, some, and because of the, the, the uh, COVID lockdowns, of course, I haven't been with anyone for about a year, so I've forgotten that feeling. But last night I went to dinner with three women and we were laughing and talking and it wouldn't have occurred to me to write anything down or to be thinking, oh, I must turn that into something or that it is something and I just have to get home and write it down. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, but I always have this urge to say, listen, okay, do you want to make a deal? I won't, before we start talking, do you want me to promise not to? And right. I think that would be stupid. That would really hamstring me. So I've never said that to anyone. In fact, this is the first time I've actually confessed it. <laughs> to another human being. Helen, you also said something about how uh, when you look back at Children's Bach, it doesn't it doesn't seem like you. it's like another Helen Garner who wrote, who wrote that. Is that specific to Children's Bach or is that how you think about your... Yeah, no, writing? specific to Children's Bach. Or, it's as if um, when I look at other old uh, stuff, you know, from the past, I, I can see, I can still feel myself doing it. But when I look at this, some detachment seems to have occurred between me and the story. I can't even uh, articulate this feeling, but um, I just think, gosh, I don't even remember thinking that, let alone saying it. And uh, that's a very exciting and wonderful feeling for me, you know. It's, and I, 
I've often quoted this, but I'll quote it again. I once, um, I once read an interview with a jazz saxophone player in the New Yorker many, many years ago, and he said, when I play badly, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. When I play well, it's got nothing to do with me. And I was blown away by that. I hadn't actually experienced it yet, but I thought, oh, God, how wonderful. There must be a sort of a state that you arrive at. And and I look back and I think it's a kind of blessed state and I think it only lasts for a very short time. But then so I was very surprised once when I was groaning and moaning about something else I was trying to write and I was lying lying down, you know, like this in front of my <laughs> desk, and, well, not beside my desk, and, and there were some notebooks shoved into a shelf near me and I just thought, I wonder what that is, and I pulled it out and what was a diary and it was a diary that I'd kept during the writing of the children's bar. And it was full of the same old torture. You know, I was saying, I can't do this. I can't make it right. How am I going to get Dexter out of the house? And <laughs> torturing myself so plainly, it, 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 I wasn't in any sort of blessed state. You know, I was just slogging away at the coal face in the usual way. So it's a great mystery to me, that book. Anyway, yeah. I'm so glad that you like it too. Oh, yeah, I, and we're not alone in that, I think. Uh, you know, it's, it's such an extraordinary book. Um, one of the reasons um, I asked you to, to read that scene too, Helen, was that it, it focuses on um, somebody from outside looking at the home that somebody else has made um, and, uh, and also an interloper coming in who's going to disrupt that, people who are going to disrupt that, that home as well. And so um, this idea of homes in your work in the shared house, of course, in monkey grip and, and of course, the spare room. <laughs> um, but so many ways that the home is so important. And I was struck when I read um, an interview with you and you spoke about your father who, who said he had no attachment to any home at all or any house at all, nothing. Yes. And and what that meant for you. And can I ask about what the house, houses have meant for you in literal terms uh, first, and in the first instance here, the homes you've lived in? Well, firstly, I say about my father that he was a very restless person and he was always um, dragging my mother from house to house. So, uh, and yet I think I only lived in, let's see, one, two, three, four houses in my childhood. It's not as if we moved every six months. But um, I sat down recently and made a list of all the houses I'd lived in, all the places I'd lived in. It came to 27. And does that seem a lot to you? Um, Yeah, I think so. I I was quite shocked. And uh, some of them might only stayed for maybe six months, but I just just wrote down every single one, every single address. And... uh, it was. It was. It gave me quite a shock. Um, I'm just calculating mine. Is that what you were doing? Me at the ceiling. I've got about. I think I'm about ten. Ten in, between ten and thirteen. But that's about me as well. Yeah. But, oh, well, yeah. there you go. It's not as if we're sort of rooted in place. Right. Yeah. Any of us. But um, yeah. Well, the thing that my father said. You know, he said he sort of roundly declared that he never had any sentimental attachment to any blah, blah, blah. I just looked at him and I thought, that really is a weird thing to say. I mean, he said it sort of proudly, 
as if because uh, he, I was helping him move, um, him and my mother moved to a different um, house. But uh, he's the sort of guy who used to go for a walk, see a house that was being auctioned at that very moment, and he'd walk up to the auction and bid on it and buy it, a house. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then he'd go home and say, okay, Mum, we're moving to Kew. And Mum would be really upset and furious because she liked it where they were and uh, he dragged her around the world in that way. And But I, I do find that sort of highly sort of neurotic and uh, uh, just kind of sort of boredom and itchy feet. And so it meant that my mother, of course, was perpetually being detached from her neighbours, groups of friends, and so she ended up depressed and very lonely and uh, and then she got Alzheimer's and then she died. And I can't help seeing it as a sort of... Um, uh, you can see the trail there. It, it was very painful to witness, actually. But yeah. see, now I've been living in the same house for, what, nearly 20 years, and that's the longest I've been anywhere, and I, I love it. I mean, you can grow things, and you can see them. There's a tree, tree. and it has plums on it, you know. It's, yeah, you can watch a tree grow. I think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that so satisfying, yeah. Yeah. This is a shot in the dark, Helen, but are you a fan of Marilyn Robinson at all, who wrote Housekeeping? Oh, very much so, yes. I greatly admire her. I think she's wonderful. Do, do, you, have a, do you have a thought about, because uh, I feel like she's really obsessed with homes in a really interesting way as well, that there are the people who leave and the people who stay. You know, that yes. housekeeping is sort of structured around the wandering aunt and then, yes. you know, the sister who really wants to just stay in Fingerbone or whatever it's called. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it, like the, the the permanent. I think of it as a very American dynamic, but maybe it's Australian too. Like that, the you know, fixed, yes. fixed people and the wandering people. You know. But. Yes, I haven't quite actually. Housekeeping. So I did read that when it first came out. I've never read yeah. it again, but I've I've read um, Gilead and the the whole little group of books yeah. about, yeah. which is uh, yeah. astonishing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yes. I never used to understand people who stayed in the same place. I used to think, don't you get bored? Why don't you want to move? Not to move country or to move city, but just to move house. And still I find if I'm walking around, even in my neighbourhood, I'm always thinking, could I live in that house? I'll go and look at it. And I I just love that. Um, One thing I absolutely adore is the smell of fresh paint. It always yeah. reminds me of when you move into some yeah. shit house that you, we've rented as a group and you think, oh, yeah, we can make this nice. And so everyone gets up on a ladder and paints and you're eating a sandwich while you're painting and, oh, those were happy times back in the 70s. You know, when you could you could move into a house in, in a week and make it nice, just white, white paint up everywhere, a bit of calico, and there you had a new space. And there are those dreams. The dreams. Uh, there's this. I know this is in my work somewhere. Those dreams where you go into a house that you felt that felt familiar, but then in the dream you discover a whole other wing. Yeah. Think, oh, I didn't know that was there. Or often it's um, an attic. You go up some stairs and think, oh, there's a beautiful room up here, and it's got a view, and I can look out. And those are. Very th- thrilling. It's very strangely, I'm raving on, so stop me, but this is sort of linked to the theme. Um, uh, someone I was married to once uh, said that he thought that I should stop writing about households 
he said, why do you keep writing about households? And uh, I thought, oh, I had, firstly, I hadn't noticed that I was writing about households because I wasn't doing it on purpose. And secondly, I thought, but why wouldn't I write about them? Because they're just so endlessly interesting. Can I ask you about another line? Just about then you also say you're describing, I think it's Janet, the house owner there. She says, some of us fell into the gap between theory and practice. Can you say yeah. more about that? That's such a wonderful, you're talking about people who died, people who couldn't live that life or people in yeah. the share house. Or junkies or. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, um, yes, well, theory. Uh, in the 70s, we had a lot of theory. Um, we yeah. had, uh, well, feminism was the main one, but, you know, everybody I ever shared a house with was some sort of lefty. And, you know, we were always going out on demonstrations and making flags and banners and stuff. And um, and we had high we had high hopes. We had we thought that feminism was going to change the world. And, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways it probably did, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff that I think will never change. It doesn't matter what politics arise. But um, we uh, we hoped for, um, we hoped that we could make, this gets back to what we were talking about before, about the dynamic of a people, social dynamic in, in a share house. We hoped, and we, we sort of believed it was possible to, make a household that wouldn't have the kind of rigid roles that our parents and our yeah. childhood had, which were, um, you know, everybody kind of crept around when the father was home, you know, that, that sort of dynamic. And we, we hoped very much that the raising of children would be um, shared with men. Uh, but in those households, they that there would be single mothers, women who needed a household, that needed the village to help them raise the child, and and it is true that for many years those those I still feel deep gratitude for the, for the, to the people I shared houses with, and and in a sense especially the men because some of them were quite young and they didn't have children of their own, but they were so good to the children, they were wonderful with our kids and. Um, I look back on those times with great fondness and tenderness. and But often the households would explode for some reason yeah. or someone would sleep with someone's boyfriend or somebody would be envious because they didn't have a job and everyone else did and just uh, things that... The other thing we didn't have, we didn't have any psychological theory. We were ignorant of psychology and full of it. We thought that people, we didn't even know there was such a thing as therapy. We didn't know you could go and ask someone for help if you were freaking out and your life was a mess. Um, so we didn't have any concepts with which to examine our, the dynamic of our household. So it's interesting because it's, so it's the gap between theory and practice, but you're saying some, you were missing some of the theory, like there was other types yeah, of theory. We had, we had plenty of theory. Yeah. Uh, uh, large social movements yeah <laughs> but not much about inner inner struggles right and, and i think yeah. australia i mean here's a generalization helen and and but i think australia is it was a site is is still a sort of psychologically ignorant country i think or a culture uh, i think more there's there's been some headway but i, I don't know if that's a broader broader statement is true but it strikes me that we are we are that mm. 
Yes, that's true. It certainly hasn't, um, well, psychoanalytic thinking certainly hasn't sunk deep into the texture of things here. It mm. hasn't. And there's still a lot of hostility to it, to to that kind of thinking. Um, and you, um, and to the assistance it could bring, the clarity it might bring. Yeah, it's like, uh, it seems to me. That, sorry, people. It seems to me that people who despise psychotherapy, uh, like well, we're all going along in a ship, right? And and uh, some people fall overboard. And the psychotherapy to me is like you know the the sort of the um, that round thing that you throw in that floats. What's it called? The, the life belt. Yeah, life belt. The, and there are other people on the ship who go, hey, "There's nothing the matter. You know, you're just a wimp if you can't swim out. Why throw the?" And I, I find that just so sort of terrible. And brutal and sad, really. But is it is it crazy to say that the novel that novels are a kind of psychological theory? Also, I mean, I've always thought that, like when you were describing the dream, the dream of the extra attic, I was thinking, well, that's Jane Eyre, right? Like that's what that's is that unsatisfying? I mean, to me, like novels are they help me think about what somebody else's inner life is like. Like that, I find oh, yeah. fiction reliable. That's, yeah, that's one of their great wonders, isn't it? Just that you can enter another person's psyche and the writer's psyche, but but the, the psyches of the characters are so endlessly fascinating. So I, yeah. I sort of, um, I, I find though that there are times when I really can't sort of bear to read a novel. It surprised me during the, we had very ferocious lockdowns for, yeah. for the pandemic in Victoria and um, I, I was really quite shocked to find that reading was difficult for me because oh. that's my default thing. And it, when the chips are down, that's what I do. But I somehow, something happened um, that made it that I couldn't do it or it, I couldn't concentrate or I, I couldn't use use what was available to help me. What did navigate. you do instead? Oh, I don't know. I just lay around, lay on the bed looking at the ceiling. Oh, in the first lockdown, I worked quite hard on the second volume of the diary. So mm. that was well, that was actually work and I was quite That's happy. good, yeah. The second one, I, I w watched a bit of TV. I watched, I started watching West Wing, which I never watched the first time around. And, uh, but I guess I was sad. Helen, who, who would you say would be writers that... Um, formed your or informed your own, or you, you liked, or informed your own practice of writing, or informed your own fictional worlds or non-fictional worlds. Can you name any of them? I mean, I can. Think this is always a this is always a very difficult question for me. As soon as someone asks me this question, I go blank, and I um, it's really weird because I've done nothing but read most of my life. And starting from when I was and I, um, I don't really know how to answer that question. I somewhere in somewhere in this diary I'm working on at the moment, the third volume of the diaries. I I came across a remark that I'd made to the effect that I thought I, I was comparing the sort of rather dry, restrained English influence. That has that I've had from a lot of British reading, with a sort of noisier, um, more rambunctious kind of American 
influence that I've got. And and I, I, I remarked something to the effect of um, I think that, you know, whatever, whatever small thing it is I've got, it's it's a combination of those two things. And I, um, you know, I'd love to say, oh, well, Chekhov is my greatest influence, but but <coughs> I, um, you know, I've read Chekhov, I love Chekhov, and I love Tolstoy, but, um, and, and, and I love certain... Um, I'm a huge fan, for example, of Philip Roth. But, but Philip Roth, when you pick up a book by Philip Roth and there's such power in the books that it's kind of awe-striking, it's not something you, you can like use as a model. I, I, um, oh, I know who I've used as a model, Raymond Carver. I was just going to oh, say wow. that. Yeah. Raymond Carver had a huge influence on me. And I, yeah. I, um, I, I was, when I read his stories first, I was just thunderstruck. I thought, what you can do with so little? And it's yeah. packed, the page is packed and you look mm. at it and it's all white. Yeah. I, um, I yeah, I, I think he, he was a wonderful, fabulous writer. And I do know that a lot of it was the influence of Gordon Lish, his ferocious editor. But I reckon um, Gordon Lish... I know nothing else about him except I once read a short story he wrote and it was terrible. Ah. It was a really awful story. It was I agree. Kind of yeah. and, bullshit and, and it was really kind of, um, you know, sort of packed with testosterone-like gestures and I thought, God. But, but as an editor he had this amazing light touch. And wasn't it interesting after, he, after Carver died and Tess Gallagher Republished some of the, the she published some of the early drafts, the pre-lish drafts of a couple of his stories, and I, hmm. I went to read them and I was horrified. I thought, wow. firstly, the stories that they become mushy and um, sentimental, and I thought that's what Lish got rid of out of it. He got rid of that sort of mush of the drunk, the the, uh, the drunk sentimentality. He just stripped that right out, and. I, I, and I did puzzle. I wondered why Tester Gallagher had done this. And I thought that perhaps she thought it was an act of loyalty or love perhaps. And then I wondered, I mean, this is no real sort of sneaky psychoanalytic thought. <clears throat> I thought maybe it was actually an act of, um, of rivalry. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know her and I... I'm sure that if I met her, I would like her and we would get on, judging by her own work. But um, I, I was really struck by her having reversed that process and I wonder if anybody's written anything about that. Hmm. Helen, do you know this um, essay that Willa Cather wrote, sort of mid-late mid career? She wrote an, an essay called The Novel De Moublé, meaning the novel Stripped of Furniture. And just saying that. Oh, Oh no! Yeah. So it's actually it's a house metaphor, I guess, right? In fact, she talks about the upper room, the the Jesus. Yeah, but she talks about the notion of getting red as the aesthetic practice of the novel. That it's that what you want to do is is create the space and then withdraw from it. You know that so that what the reader hears is not the words, but the overtones, like not the said word, but the unsaid word. It's almost like describing images poetry almost, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that links up with um, all, all, all the stuff that Hemingway says in, um, 
in uh, what is it called? The Movable Feast, you know, yeah. that rather sort of strange little memoir that he wrote. Yeah. Uh, and he says, what you, what you cut, you cut and cut, but the reader still feels the presence yeah, right. of yeah. what you cut. And uh, I'm sure that's that's true. And and that's, that gets back to what you were saying before, Liz, about, mm. about cutting. And well, the thing mm. about cutting is, oh, yeah, I could tell a little story. Um, back in the 80s, I, I met that um, this German guy who used to teach creative writing, I forget where, at some university, perhaps in California. His name is Reinhard Letter, and uh, he read something of mine and he said, there's too many adverbs in that. And it was the first time anyone had pointed out to me this sort of heavy-handedness of adverbs. And uh, it, it, that was probably the most useful thing anyone's ever said to me as a critique. And not long after that, um, the book in question which was Honour and Other People's Children, my second book, which is a bit of a mess, uh, that that was going to be um, reissued. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to hack out the adverbs. And I said to my husband at the time, the, the writer, I said, I'm going to hack the adverbs out of this. And he said, you can't do that. He said, that will be tampering with history. I said, I don't care. I'm hacking them. So I hacked away. And pretty soon I was like ankle deep in adverbs, and uh, I felt so overjoyed by that. And they were really quite sort of, you know, they weren't me writing at my best, those, those two stories, but but I, um, I I did feel very liberated by, by that comment and I realised once again um, how little you can manage with um, and, and how... There's, I, I find this again and again that I, that the that, that sort of fat writing that I don't want to have, the fatness seems to issue from my anxiety and uh, inability to trust the reader, um, to, to, the inability to to believe that the reader is going to go there uh, or is with me and and has brought all stuff from her own or his own experience that will furnish that room so I don't have to furnish it, bringing in the Demobly concept. Um, can I um, ask about the diaries? I've been These are the most recent um, books of yours that I've been reading in the last, last few days as well. And I'm not a diary writer. I've read lots of other people's diaries, but yours were, the, as you say, these observations captured and you write of yourself or other people in the third person, the first person is... All the literary world is there. Um, I was really fascinated by that. When I burnt my diaries, I, I burnt all, all, all my diaries up to the point at which um, Yellow Notebook starts. And the reason why I burnt them was because they were just so boring. I found them boring and whingy and, and, and a bit like the kind of thing that... Um, Peter Corris had been criticising, I suppose. You know, a lot of romance and, you know, why doesn't he love me and that sort of stuff. But so I burnt it all. And, and also it was because I had looked in there to find out find what I'd written on the day of the Whitlam dismissal, mm. the dismissal of, of, a, of an elected Labor government. And, um, and I thought, I wonder what I wrote about it. And I looked in the diary and I hadn't even mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
And so I thought, oh, my God, I'm okay. I just made a fire and I threw the whole, whole lot on. But uh, the point at which I sort of stopped burning was where they started to get more interesting and I thought and they started to be not so much about my private thoughts and experiences as just observation of the world around me and observation of people I met or things that I ever heard, things like that. And then as, as I went on, I could see, I mean, I just editing the diary for publication was quite painful process and humiliating in many ways. Um, but I, um, I could see that I that this what this was and what it amounted to was my my ten thousand hours. You know how you get to be any good at something? You practice, and you practice every single day. And you don't do it with grinding purpose necessarily. You do it because maybe you really love playing tennis, and it's the thing you love the most. And the thing I love the most is um, messing around with a pen on a bit of paper. I mean that was from when I was a girl that that's the thing I love the most and so and what do you write about you write about the day you sit down before you go to bed at night and you, you sort of you use the diary to sort of calm yourself in for sleep or to just say okay what happened today what did I learn today what did anyone say to me or what's in my mind what's the you know what Freud called the day's residue mm. and um and I, and I, when I was writing, I, I wasn't just crudely taking notes. I was actually trying to write coherently and to make good sentences, shapely ones, and to use, you know, it was, and I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. That was the one part of my day that I knew I was going to enjoy was, was writing in my diary, and that, that's the same even now. And then... When I started to want to, uh, I mean, for example, when I started writing the children's bark, um, I found all sorts of things in the diary that I could use that were um, chunks of material that I could, as it were, um, develop or grow. Um, and this is where it all starts. My explanation gets a bit blurry because I really don't understand this process. Um, I, I just know that every now and then I write something in the diary that seems to transcend at the immediate moment. So and it's got kind of potential usefulness. So, Helen, at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about these scraps that came back to you for later use. Are those, would those generally be from the diary or are they something else? Like, did you have Pretty a different much, way of writing? Yeah. Well, I do have a little notebook, you know, just a notebook yeah. that I keep in my bag, which I notice that I hardly use at all now. I don't seem to um, fill them up as I used to. And they were very, they were very useful for, um, I mean, you know, when you're on a bus or a tram and somebody next to you is talking and, and it's not, often it's not the content of what they say but just the way they're shaping their sentences yeah. or the music of it, which is thrilling. And so I would tend to write those things down and then I could use them later or I could adapt them. But perhaps the notebook's more like just hearing the tune of everything that's around you. Yeah. A diary is um, more analytical and trying to understand what hurt you or what 
made you laugh or yeah. it's just a sort of practice court, I suppose. George Eliot had these books. I've actually held one in my hand called Quarry, like the quarry from Middlemarch. But I think it's different because she kept it when she already knew she was going to write a novel that maybe was going to be called Dorothea Brooke or maybe it was going to be called Middlemarch. But it was a it was a quarry for the novel. But that's not what you're describing, right? I mean, it's not because it's no, not. Except that I've used that I could in in nonfiction. I would use that. Yeah. When I those books um, that you mentioned, Liz, um, Joe Tinkway and this uh, House of Grief. As soon as I start, um, as soon as I go to a trial, the first thing I do is go and buy myself a special notebook that's going to be about my experience in the court, and. So that I have these kind—I of, suppose they're kind of like working journals. They—they're different from; they're separate from it, the ordinary diary. But they—but um, I, I write—I use them a lot, and they would be um, each day. I write an account of basically what was my engagement with the material. I suppose you'd call it, yeah. and uh, what, who said things to me, and what I noticed about people in the court, or what maybe a lawyer said to me on the way out the door different from the stuff I would be putting in my little notebook when I was actually sitting there in the court. And um, what I found was when I come to actually write the book that those working journals are the spine of the book and I didn't know that's what they were when I was writing them or the first time I didn't. But the second time I realised that that was how I was going to be able to use that stuff later. Like I love the way you talked about responsibility and also detachment in a couple of different senses. But one thing that hasn't come up yet that I was hoping to touch on is just is music, like music as a metaphor for you. I mean, the children's Bach, obviously, but but also just like, you know, once I started thinking about it, you see it everywhere. There's, you know, like in Cosmo, there's a little moment when Natalie says, I like a quartet. It's like a family or a conversation. And I just feel like it does seem like it's a persistent set of metaphors for you from, I don't know, making sense of the world, making sense of writing. So, yeah, can you just talk about that a bit? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I'm, I never sort of consciously thought that, but, uh, you know, I've, music is very, um, I, I just love it. You know, I go through, once again, I go through periods where I don't really listen to it much, and that was something else that happened in the lockdown. I surprised myself. Yeah. But I sort of didn't want to listen to music. Um, wow. But but I, I do know that um, I, I tried to learn the piano when I, I never learned as a child. When I was about 40, I decided to try to learn the piano and I, I've had a couple of teachers over the subsequent years and I never got anywhere, but I sort of loved it. And, uh, and I had the kind of teachers who... Um, could see that I was <laughs> had no particular challenge as a musician, but but that music itself was. I remember saying to one of my teachers, um, she says, "Oh, I think you should learn the second journey um, piece because you you can handle that first one." And I said, "Oh, great!" I said, "I love boring exercises." I spontaneously said, and she said, "Oh, yes. Well, it doesn't surprise me because it means that you've got a certain kind of relationship with the music. You see, you see things in the music that other people don't." She actually said that. <laughs> I was so happy, but but um, <laughs> but it's true that you know that, that's why I love Bach so much because yeah. of the of the, the formal. I mean, just the 
The person who put me onto J.S. Buck was Manning Clark, actually, the, the historian. And he he used to say to me, my, my maiden name was Ford. He used to call me Miss Ford. He said, Miss Ford, uh, come and listen to this. And he just put on this glorious thing. And uh, he never said anything. He didn't expect me to say anything. He just said, listen to this. And so I don't know, I started to listen to Buck and Buck is... Uh, Buck, Buck's keyboard music particularly is to me um, the absolute the peak of civilization, and and it's you just listen to that music and even or try to play it and even if you you can't play, you just stagger through some little piece. It still makes you feel that there is such a thing as meaning, or yeah. that everything isn't chaos, and just the the way that he resolves the piece is so calming and beautiful you, so I, I i thought that um uh there's something about shaping a sentence too which can, can be musical i mean there's a i've got a fairly strong sense of when a sentence isn't working and and how if you shift the load of it to a different place you get a balance or you get a forward surge, and punctuation is important to me in that regard. What you love writing about, like in, say, Monkey Grip or Children's Bach, is very unordered spaces. Like you're writing about a disorderly world in this orderly way. And that feels like a tension, right? It, or do not? Yes. Yeah. Yes, or, or an attempt not to be swept away in chaos or, or to find a, a sort of place to to stand yeah. in chaos. Um, well, I find chaos actually quite frightening and um, I have an urge to impose order, I think. Uh, I mean, I'm actually quite known to be a rather bossy person and um, I, I think that's uh, what that is. It's uh, I, I, I really admire people a person who can walk into a room and when they walk in and, and everyone's fighting or yelling and if they walk in, something happens. We always ask this one question and it's a somewhat goofy question, so you could take it in any way you want. But the question is, basically, what's your favorite treat while you're in the throes of writing? And it doesn't have to be food. I mean, is there something yeah. that you do or you play or you drink or you eat when the going gets really tough for you? Well, that's very interesting. Let me think. Ah, oh, this comes to mind. I go and have a facial. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. Wow. I only go, I only do that. Uh, that's the first thing that came to mind. Once I would have said I'd go and get a massage, but um, I suppose it's looking for, um, once again, a quiet thing where nobody's talking and somebody's doing nice things to me in a physical way. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know, I've never thought that before. Maybe that's bullshit, but it was the first thing that came to mind, so psychoanalytically. <laughs> how long does a I don't know. How long does a facial last? How oh, long? about an hour. About an yeah. hour. Yeah. And basically they're cleaning your face. Yeah. You know, they're taking out of your pores all yeah. the crap that's blown in there off the street yeah. and that you haven't yeah. managed to wash it out by yourself. So I suppose it's a... Um, it's one of those blessing type feelings, you know, where you think, yeah. oh, now I'm clean and I can go home. 
So as we come to the end of another novel dialogue, Arthi and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program and Duke University. Nye Kim is our production intern and designer and Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. And recent and upcoming dialogues include Kelly Rich speaking with Teju Cole, Michael Johnson speaking with George Saunders, the author of Lincoln and the Bardo. So from all of the novel biologists, that's how you say it, thanks for listening and hope to talk to you again soon.